and welcome to Champions of the Pacific. I'm Vinnie Wiley. Today, rugby eligibility laws are up for review at the end of the month. Is Union about to have its rugby league moment, or is it just another false dawn? And we talk to the Samoan Tokelau family dedicated to keeping people safe in the water. The World Rugby Council will consider a proposal next week to change the sport's eligibility rules to make it easier for players to switch their international allegiance. Think Lima Sopoanga lining up for Manu Samoa or Charles Piato playing for Tonga. So will it happen? Or will Pacific Island nations once again be given rugby's cold shoulder? And joining me to discuss the matter are former Ikalatahi captain Inoke Afiaki and Pacific Rugby Players Welfare CEO and former Samoa lock Dan Leo. Inoke, is this the time? Are you? Do you feel optimistic at all? The current wording of one one union, one life, has been in existence since 2000, January 1st, so that's 21 years plus. And you've got to ask the question, why, why was it put there in the first place? Um, they said it was to protect smaller countries, smaller rugby unions, uh, but the evidence doesn't show that. It shows the opposite. The professional game has made it harder. Um, yes, we get a little bit of money back from World Rugby after it holds a successful, profitable World Rugby World Cup. But can they argue that, that you know, if we had access to our best players who are not being used by Tier 1 countries, would we have been better off? And I can probably answer that. Well, just look at what Rugby League did in their Rugby World Cup. Recently, obvious that with our best players available who really want to play for the country, who have heritage, we would do really well. You were playing through this. You'd obviously debuted for Tonga, I think, you know, mid-90s. 95, 95, <laughs> yes, a long time ago. Um, and, uh, and this law came into place, as you say, at the turn of the century, uh, and then you yeah. continued to play for Tonga for a few years beyond that. So during yeah. your time with the Ikaletahi um, and the players that you played alongside, did you notice any difference from pre-2000 to post-2000 in, in terms of either players that wanted to play for Tonga that therefore could not, you know, after a stand-down after that, or, or just yeah. any meaningful change? Yeah, obviously, um, the guy, not just Tom, but Samoa, mainly uh, the guys that were here in the Wellington team, mainly Samoan. And you could see the frustration uh, that they held just having played a handful of tests. A good mate of mine, Philo Tietia, who's now coaching a minor Pacifica, he could have been an amazing international player for Samoa. He bubbles everything for Samoa. And yeah, you could see that uh, him and his family were hurting. That opportunity wasn't there for him. Ace had played for. Uh, Samoa, the younger brother. There's a lot of guys that had played a handful of tests, or even for the New Zealand 18. Uh, Kuba Bainisi was another flanker uh, that we had in Wellington. But, you know, we are asking the question, why can't we give, give back to a country that, that has that holds a really special place for us? Unfortunately, the, the council might see differently because there's a threat that will be too good. And, you know, rather than beat us on the field with our best, they can do that off the field by just restricting us from treating us like property, that uh, if we decide to play for a country, you're now property and you can't change. You're stuck. Well, welcome, Dan. 24th of November is D-Day this time around. Um, the fact that it's at least going to be put before the council, I guess, is some form of progress. But uh, what's your sort of mindset? Do you, do you feel optimistic? The fact that they're at least discussing it, is that something? Or is it irrelevant because, you know, it's highly unlikely to pass anyway with, you know, the makeup of the council? They make it difficult, don't they? You know, firstly, um, you know, the fact that Tonga, probably the, you know, the, the biggest beneficiary of a, of a change of eligibility laws, don't have a vote on the council. 
um, at this stage. Um, and then the fact that, uh, you know, um, some of the bigger nations, um, bigger in, um, in, you know, in population-wise anyway, and probably finances, um, not necessarily in results, um, have three, three votes, you know, um, Italy, who are actually, you know, ranked below Fiji, have three times as much voting power. It's messed up. Um, and then you've got, you know, the, the fact that the threshold for this eligibility uh, law to pass is 75%, you know, almost makes it um, a non-starter, really. Um, you know, that's just 14 votes to go against. We can pretty much count those um, already. Um, so, yeah, not massively op optimistic, uh, Vinny, about it being able to go through. Is it encouraging? In a, in a, in a sense, it is, because we've, we've lobbied hard for this to be on the agenda for years. But then the fact that it's, you know, um, it feels like a bit of a box ticking exercise for, for World Rugby to be able to say they're reviewing it, but actually, you know, with the knowledge that, you know, very small chances that it will go through, is possibly a chance for them to, you know, to say, oh, well, at least we're doing something, you know. Um, and we can't, we can't ever settle for that either. Yeah, so there are some double standards that we feel still need addressing. And those are probably wider systematic issues as opposed to just this eligibility, as I said, you know, the, the, um, the weighting of the, of the council. Um, but also, you know, the fact, you know, that um, a lot of these votes are behind closed doors. Put yourselves in front of the World Rugby Council on the 24th of November. What is your message to those council members, be they the Oceania rugby representatives, be they Tuilepa uh, for Samoa, or uh, John O'Connor for Fiji, or the three representatives from New Zealand, Italy, etc. What's your pitch? Uh, my pitch to the World Rugby Council is um, it's time. It's time to let the shackles off the smaller nations in the world, who, especially the ones from the Pacific, have given so much to the game. And just imagine how how competitive we could be with having our best players back in in our colours. Um, the spirit of the game will be at its height. We would have guys that have only played a handful of games for other countries that are, are, are ready to play again for their beloved country, their second country that they, they didn't, didn't have a, really a choice to play for because the game is about making money. But if we want to take rugby to where it used to be, about love, about passion, all the stuff we talk about, integrity, then the right vote is to let us have players back. So good luck with your vote. I hope it's one that's good for smaller countries. But yes, look after yourselves, your family, through COVID, and uh, the game, please stay strong. Cheers. Geez, I'm probably not as uh, articulate as uh, Inoki, but I, I think, um, you know, for me, uh, Benny, um, if I was to be in that meeting, it'd be, um, you know, appealing to, yes, the hearts, but also uh, the wallets. And the reality is, is that uh, for everyone that has questions on that board about oh, how does this, you know, voting for this, you know, affect us? How does it impact us positively? Because at the moment, everyone's looking negatively. Oh, well, Tonga and Samoa get back all their players and all of a sudden, you know, the Uruguays, the Scotlands, the Italys, they're looking over their shoulder. Are they going to beat us? Yeah, that could happen, but it's, it's still going to benefit you financially because as uh, Enoki touched on and we've spoken about it earlier, you know, the game is driven by money. If we've got two teams who can automatically uh, become potential quarterfinalists and we take that, that number up from realistically, you know, uh, 10 teams to 12 or 14 teams, the World Cup becomes, um, you know, a bigger spectacle, becomes more of a, a global game. There's going to be more money to go around. That's going to have massively impact uh, World Rugby's coffers. 
and all of the tier, all of the tiers from tier one all the way down to throughout through that the World Cup being the pinnacle and the main you know, money uh, driver for world rugby. So this isn't just something that's the right thing to do. It's um, you know mo- from a moral perspective, and as you know for the integrity of the game, but it's also the right thing to do financially, and that's that's the key thing. Do this, and everyone wins. More than 100 people drown in New Zealand waters each year, and one Samoan Tokelau family is on a mission to educate the community about keeping safe when making a splash. The Fuliafunga Chan Fong family, that's mum Anuali'i Rowena, dad Mike and their daughter Helena, talk to us about their experiences as surf lifeguards at Tehenga, Auckland's Bethel's Beach. They spoke with Tale Anderson about what more can be done to ensure that people are being safe in and around the water. Like a lot of sports clubs, you know, you take your kids there and then uh, next minute you're volunteering to hold the bags and then next minute you're coaching, next minute uh, I became a lifeguard. And then that was a natural progression for the kids when they come through nippers uh, or junior surf. Um, really that's what involved around recruiting a lot of guards uh, young or old, so uh, that was a good experience. So we all joined at the same time. We all, Helena and I, did the uh, bronze or you know lifeguarding um, uh, recruitment qualification together, and then our youngest boys followed suit uh, not long after that. Helena, what are some of the reasons why people need assistance in the water? Is there uh, like one common reason, or is it a combination of things? Definitely a combination of things. And a lot of the time it's just because people just don't know about just how dangerous like beaches can get. And every beach is different. There's different um, hazards and different dangers everywhere you go. Um, And especially what trips up a lot of rescues is that people don't realize that like rips, they, they look really, really calm and if you want to relax, like you want to be, that's the first place where you want to go. It's like to swim in the calm patches of water when actually they're like really, really, they're more dangerous than the, um, the white water and stuff. Local knowledge, beach knowledge, and just water knowledge is really um, key. So, yeah, I think that really contributes to our, our drowning rates in New Zealand. When we look at the stats of preventable drownings in New Zealand, Māori and Pacifica males in particular, they feature quite highly. You know, what Surf Lifesaving New Zealand are doing is great. It's undoubtedly necessary and needed, but, you know, it's not enough to address the wider issues. What else do you think needs to happen to change or ensure that people are being safe in the water to prevent drownings? I think a lot of people in Surf Lifesaving would agree that we can't do everything. It can't just be Surf Lifesaving New Zealand who are leading and doing this work. It has to be like a team effort across all a variety of organisations. So that's like Drown and Prevention, Ministry of Education, local iwi. We can learn so much from them just in terms of the beach and the land and the water, you know, and when you know things, when you know your backyard, you know how to have fun and you know how to keep safe. Mm. There needs to be more organizations in this conversation especially with Pacifica communities there needs to be like a community around water education Mm. but that has to come from 
people who look like us and leading that conversation. It can't just be like some random sort of life-saving person from Muriwai telling the community out in South Auckland. It has mm. to be come from our own people. Yeah, and I, I guess also just um, in terms of that statistic that you mentioned, that, yeah, Māori, Māori and Pacific men do um, rate high in, in our drowning stats. If you look at it from a regional perspective, it's really interesting that it's largely within Auckland. And I just, I mean, I know that statistic. I know we know that statistic and our surf clubs know that statistic but do our communities know that you know um and it's about kind of mm. sharing that type of um information within our the carver circles or the churches you know as a, as a reminder before you know the big beach trips out there that there are there is greater access to the water here in New Zealand you know lots more of our people are getting you know little boats and that's where they're getting into trouble that's where this thing is is is, is kind of leading so it is really important just to share the information with our communities I know uh, we've been asked um, by surf um, surf life saving to to share things within our community radios but we can't be the only family <laughs> yeah yeah you know we, we, we can't be the only family and we will we'll do anything to to help promote the awareness and and whatnot but there just needs to be a lot more resourcing um especially in that in that kind of space just looking at the facilities that we have where yeah. our people live is huge um, out west, we've only got West Wave as the one big public mm-hmm. uh, swimming facility, and that's always packed. So it's always hard to kind of find like a, a spare lane, etc. South Auckland don't have access to a lot of safe beaches. There are not many clean, well-funded guarded beaches out south. So often they have to travel elsewhere. But if you look at somewhere like the shore, where there's heaps of beaches, there are flash facilities. And that probably speaks to why, you know, some of the water polo clubs and um, et cetera. So it's not that New Zealand needs to dig up more <laughs> beaches in South Auckland. It's just looking at, you know, what we can do, what needs to be funded as well. It, it helps, but also resourcing. I, I, I think what you're trying to say is, yeah. um, you know, the clubs, the clubs on the shore, of course, they're well resourced because a lot of it is, it is voluntary, you know, a lot of um, kind of water accessibility is funded by people's resources, own, our own um, resources. So uh, you tend to kind of see a lot of wealth on that side, whereas a lot of our beaches out on the west coast or even out south like Helena was saying um there just isn't that funding uh, or that awareness no um, flash wharfs no flash boat ramps etc but I think if we had more of those then people would be able to access them more regularly and then I guess safely yeah safely and then fall in love with like the water like we mm. have because that's why we you know Bottom, bottom line, that's why we do this, because we love the water, we love the beach. So it's kind of restoring that or aiding that relationship. 
If you want to hear more from champions of the Pacific, like the Fuluia Whanga Chan Fong family, you can find us online at rnz.co.nz. Just click on the Pacific tab. You can also download us from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favourite podcasts. Until next time, look and mute.